from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Welcome to the Friday night edition of the program. If you want to join us on our live, uh, on our live late night national town hall conversation, feel free, 833-4825-337-8334, Valdez. And lots of things, man. I've been following the news since 8 a.m. this morning, and it's changed so much in that time. Jim Jordan has been ousted as the speaker nominee earlier today. He said he was going to keep trying to work through the weekend. Uh, They had their next vote and he's out. There's been some closed door conversation. And I want you to hear this. House Republicans will return on Monday at 630 p.m. for a candidate forum, followed by uh, an election process on Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. That is Patrick Manhenry. The uh, congressman that's sitting in as interim uh, speaker, kind of laying out what's going to go on. Then there's some news on the 2024 election. Perry Johnson, he has dropped out of the Republican race for president after months of literally no one knowing he was even running. (laughs) It's a funny headline uh, on the Bongino report here. Uh, Great page, by the way. And um, James Comer. He has released uh, evidence on a $200,000 direct payment to Joe Biden. And uh, we have about a two-minute clip of his. I, I don't like playing, playing clips that are two minutes long, but this one I think is worth it because you can really get a sense of everything they're talking about. This is um, Chairman James Comer, congressman from Kentucky, uh, explaining exactly what the House Oversight and Accountability Committee found. Listen to this. This summer, Joe Biden said, where's the money? Well, we found some. We're still digging into the evidence subpoenaed from bank accounts belonging to Hunter Biden, the son of President Joe Biden, and James and Sarah Biden, the brother and sister-in-law of the president. A document that we're releasing today raises new questions about how President Biden personally benefited from his family's shady influence peddling of his last name and their access to him. Bank records obtained by the House Committee on Oversight have revealed a $200,000 direct payment from James and Sarah Biden to Joe Biden in the form of a personal check. Here's some important context about this check we've obtained in our investigation. And we're going to get to that context in the next segment uh, with a former federal prosecutor is going to walk us through it. Then we've also had some news where some of the hostages, a couple of hostages were released uh, by Hamas after a deal that was brokered uh, with the help of the Qataris. And um, I'm happy that they're uh, safe. I also saw an interesting article um, regarding somebody who survived the the actual um, attack on that music festival. And I got to tell you, this one was very interesting. Uh, the The woman who survived that music festival, she uh, arrives back in the States and she sees the... Um, pro-Hamas 
rallies and all of the, the, the protesting against Israel. And you know what she said? She said that she felt safer in Israel. I got to tell you, that's scary stuff, right? I mean, you got to think. You were there. You saw people get slaughtered around you. Then you come back to the United States and you feel that, oh, my gosh, things are better in the uh, in the place where I was getting attacked. I mean, that that's how, how shocking this was for her. I mean, just um, just shocking to me. It really, really is. Really, really shocking. Anyway, we're going to we're going to get to that also. Uh, I also wanted to get into where is this other story here? Also, just so you know, later on, we're going to have some discussion on on uh, relationships. I don't know what we're going to call that segment, but uh, I don't want to call it the Dr. Love, Dr. Love. I don't want to call it the Dr. Love uh, se- <laughs> segment, but uh, we got to come up with a cool name for when we talk about those things. And uh, the State Department is now says there's up to 600 Americans that are trapped in Gaza. Isn't that something? And there's a report here that says the Palestinian Authority president, uh, I believe his name is Mahmoud Abbas, reportedly has refused a call from President Biden. And I think that's uh, very telling when they don't want to talk to you, right? Um, President Joe Biden told Americans in the Oval Office address on the Middle East conflict on Thursday that he'd spoken with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas on his visit to the region last week, but Palestinian sources say he did not. Biden visited Israel in a show of solidarity in its fight against Hamas in the wake of that devastating terror attack, and Abbas and the leaders of Egypt and Jordan pulled out of a meeting with Biden after Israel was falsely blamed for an explosion at a Gaza hospital. This is according to Breitbart News. The Times of Israel reported that a Palestinian source told an Israeli broadcaster that Abbas also refused to talk with Biden by phone. Ooh, shots fired. And Biden told uh, the country the exact opposite in his Oval Office address. Uh, According to the transcript of that address, he says, I also spoke with President Abbas of the Palestinian Authority and reiterated that the United States remained committed to the Palestinian people's right to dignity and to self-determination. The actions of Hamas terrorists don't take that right away. It's not clear who is correct in whether they spoke or they didn't speak. Now, Abbas has a history of anti-Semitic rhetoric, including uh, Holocaust denial. He recently compared the state of Israel to Nazis and also said a month before the Hamas terror attack that Adolf Hitler was not an anti-Semite while the Jews deserved their fate. I got to tell you, that's some pretty heavy stuff. Um, guys like that, you know, with, with, with neighboring presidents like that, who needs enemies, right? And a quick update on President Trump here. Trump is now winning in key swing states as voters reject, guess what? Biden's economics, or what they call it, Bidenomics. That's according to a new poll. Um, the poll, which surveyed 5,023 registered voters earlier this month, found that voters said the economy was the most important issue and disapproved of Biden's economic policies, 65% to 14%. 51% of swing state voters said the national economy was better off uh, under President Trump. That's a pretty big number. Overall, just two point, uh, sorry, 26% of voters in the poll said Bidenomics has been good for the country and for the economy, while 49% disapprove of that. And that's uh, according to a report in Bloomberg. And there was this other um, 
stuff I was looking at here. And I talked about this briefly yesterday, but this is a key one here. This is according to the um, the poll that came out by, let me see if this is the Rasmussen one, Quinnipiac. All right, so the Quinnipiac poll and the CNBC survey. The CNBC survey, listen to this, 68% disapprove of Biden's handling of the economy. And 69% disapprove of his handling of foreign policy. That's miserable. Uh, The CNBC survey also has Biden at a record 58% of Americans that don't approve of his performance in the White House overall. Let me tell you, not a good look for Joe El Baboso Biden, right? Homie is in bad shape. Very, very bad shape. Anyway, we're going to continue with our discussion on what James Comer found in that House Oversight Report and continue looking into the criminality of Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and everybody else named Biden. That's part of the Biden crime family and their syndicate of lies and deceit and bribery. At least that's how it looks. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. to you, Rich, all the time. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, familia, welcome back, amigos. We continue our conversation. And, you know, earlier it's been reported that Joe Biden said that uh, Jim Jordan got his butt kicked today. Yesterday or the day before, he said uh, it was the other team, the other team. Uh, that blew up the hospital. I mean, the things that this man says are just outrageous, but more outrageous are the checks now that they can prove that he's received from his brother who got loans after uh, reportedly promising access to concoct Middle East deals. And all I could think to myself is the Middle East is currently on fire. If this is what they paid Biden for, then we already know who's paying, right? It wasn't the Israelis. It's definitely uh, folks uh, from Hamas or from other enemies of Israel, uh, maybe Iran, who knows? But whatever deals he's making, it seems he has no no influence, no sway. He got dissed by the uh, crown prince of Saudi Arabia. He got dissed by Egypt. He got dissed by Mahmoud Abbas. I mean, you name it, they all didn't want to meet with him when he was in the Middle East. So interesting, interesting stuff here. But uh, James Comer, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, again, I, I played a short clip of the video. Of I'm going to play the rest of it now. But the the allegation here is that they've been investigating. They subpoenaed bank records months ago, and they've come up with a $200,000 direct payment from James Biden to Joe Biden. Now, I don't know if that's a smoking gun. That's his brother. He wants to give him some money, lend him some money, pay back some money, whatever the story is. The question is that there's other implications here. And uh, we're going to get to the bottom of that with uh, former federal prosecutor Doug Burns. He was chief of the criminal division in New York, and he's our guest now. Doug Burns, welcome, sir. Thanks, Rich. Always a pleasure to have you, brother. Thanks for sticking up. uh, Appreciate that. Thank you. You bet. Now, I want you to hear what James Comer had to say. It's a little bit uh, like a minute and a half or two minutes, but uh, he spells it out very well. And I want to get your reaction. Listen to this. This summer, Joe Biden said, where's the money? 
Well, we found some. We're still digging into the evidence subpoenaed from bank accounts belonging to Hunter Biden, the son of President Joe Biden, and James and Sarah Biden, the brother and sister-in-law of the president. A document that we're releasing today raises new questions about how President Biden personally benefited from his family's shady influence peddling of his last name and their access to him. Bank records obtained by the House Committee on Oversight have revealed a $200,000 direct payment from James and Sarah Biden to Joe Biden in the form of a personal check. Here's some important context about this check we've obtained in our investigation. In 2018, James Biden received $600,000 in loans from AmeriCorps, a financially distressed and failing rural hospital operator. According to bankruptcy court documents, James Biden received these loans, quote, based upon representations that his last name, Biden, could open doors and that he could obtain a large investment from the Middle East based on his political connections, end quote. On March 1st, 2018, AmeriCorps wired a $200,000 loan into James and Sarah Biden's personal bank account, not their business bank account. And then on the very same day, James Biden wrote a $200,000 check from this same personal bank account to Joe Biden. James Biden wrote this check to Joe Biden as a, quote, loan repayment. AmeriCorps, a distressed company, loaned money to James Biden, who then sent it to Joe Biden. Even if this was a personal loan repayment, it's still troubling that Joe Biden's ability to be paid back by his brother depended on the success of his family's shady financial dealings. Some immediate questions President Biden must answer for the American people. Does he have documents proving he lent such a large sum of money to his brother? And what were the terms of such financial agreement? Did he have similar financial agreements with other family members that led them to make similar large payments to him? And did he know that the same day James Biden wrote him a check for $200,000, James Biden had just received a loan for the exact same amount from business dealings with a company that was in financial distress and failing? The House Oversight Committee will soon announce our next investigative actions and continue to follow the money. The bank records don't end here. There's more to come. All right, so Doug Burns, former federal prosecutor, former chief of the criminal division in New York. Uh, if you see a case like this, based on what you're hearing thus far, um, is this something where you would continue sniffing around or does this seem like business as usual? No, no, I would sniff around. And it's interesting because, uh, not to be corny, but the beauty of, of the process you know, that I've been involved in for now 38 years, hard to believe, is to look at a fact pattern and try to figure out, you know, as close as you can, exactly what you think took place. Um, and it really is interesting, and it's like a puzzle. So you start with the way you set it up, and kudos to you, because I think it's entirely fair, and it is the way to set it up. But as I go through quickly, you're going to see a number of troubling sort of red flags and problems. The first part is, okay, one brother, uh, forget who they are even, one brother wrote a check to his brother for a couple hundred thousand dollars. So what? That doesn't mean anything. But he made a mistake right out of the gate, and he wrote on there, loan repayment. That was a huge mistake. And the reason that was a huge mistake is, as uh, Representative Comer said, um, Joe Biden 
will now be under pressure to establish that he loaned his brother $200,000. And unless we're talking about, and I'm not being sarcastic, giving him a suitcase with 200 grand in cash in a garage or a back alleyway, there's going to be documentation to show whether or not he loaned him that kind of money. That's point number one. Point number two is that AmeriCorps, <clears throat> which was apparently a failing um, health care entity in a rural area. Okay, they didn't make a loan to James Biden. Okay, that's another mistake slash falsity slash problem. Uh, they were making payments to James Biden. Those aren't loans, okay? And that's something that, mm. to your formulation about sniffing further, that has to be looked at. Then come a couple of very interesting things. <clears throat> and trial lawyers make their way based on inferences, inferences. So here, what happens is AmeriCorps um, pays James Biden $200,000 on March 1st, 2018. The same exact day, um, James Biden on a checking account listing he and his wife, which is of no great significance necessarily, but hear me out. The same exact day, March 1, 2018, Rich, he's writing the check to the brother. That's seriously a red flag, <laughs> okay? So the point is, you know, is this merely a brother paying back his brother? Very, very, very unlikely. Is this uh, more nefariously some type of situation where AmeriCorps is paying money to the Biden family because they want to be helped? Okay, unlike our brethren on MSNBC, for example, and I really mean this, two wrongs don't make a right. I don't jump in and say this is definitely a crime because, by right. the way, let's have a little let's have fun for one minute. Let's say this was Donald John Trump and a sibling of his wrote him a check for 200 grand the same exact day that they were paid by a struggling company. And by Smoke the way, they, yeah, there are emails <laughs> and stuff saying the access to the Biden name can help you out. Yada. But if it was Trump, you'd have MSNBC legal experts looking right into the camera saying this is definitely a crime and you don't even need a trial and he should be in jail. So <laughs> right. it's really unfortunate that we have these kind of standards. But the fact of the matter is this does look like some type of you know, nefarious quasi-bribery situation, but it's got to be examined further. All right, folks, we're on with Doug Burns. Uh, he's a trial lawyer, 38 years experience. He is a former federal prosecutor and he was chief of the criminal uh, division for the Department of Justice in New York. We're going to continue with him and go inside the mind of a prosecutor, see how he would take this apart and approach this uh, this particular case uh, when we return. Again, our phone number, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't go anywhere. Don't move a muscle. I'm Rich Valdez. Our guest, Doug Burns. Don't move a muscle. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.
night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And we continue our conversation with former federal prosecutor Doug Burns. He was chief of the criminal division in New York for the Department of Justice. Doug Burns, as we were talking about this case of uh, the uh, House Oversight and Accountability Committee uh, discovering after subpoenaed court, uh, excuse me, bank documents that Joe Biden uh, received a two hundred thousand dollar payment the same day that his brother had gotten a quote unquote loan that we now realize is not, in fact, a loan. Um, what what is the process that um, an expert like yourself would use to start establishing a pattern of facts? Well, it's a great question because, you know, the Bidens on many levels are actually pretty smart. And I'll tell you why. Because on legal X's and O's, it's hard to prove a negative. OK, so the point is you have to focus on proving that. Joe Biden did not loan his brother uh, money. So you would obviously look at records, subpoena records around that time, bank records uh, around, you know, January, February, March of 2018, um, you know, and look from there. But again, it's hard to prove a negative. And a KG defense lawyer would stand up and say, you know, maybe it came from some account that wasn't, you know, within the government's scope. But that's not the only avenue here. One other red flag, and I'm glad I thought of it over the break, uh, Rich, is that the money, this is interesting, from AmeriCorps to James Biden went into James Biden's personal account, not into a business or corporate account. That's also a very interesting factoid in the case. And the question is, you know, why, uh, why was that done that way? Uh, and again, you know, documents, cases involve documents, but also human beings are critical. So you can uh, reach, you know, a net out, wide net, and start talking to people, okay, uh, subpoenaing them. You know, the process there uh, for the listeners is interesting because, you know, you can uh, reach out to people and they have every right to say, no, I'm not going to talk to you, but then you take it up to the next level and you give them a grand jury subpoena and then they have to uh, answer the questions or invoke some kind of, you know, privilege against self-incrimination. Um, and, you know, we get into negotiations between prosecutors and lawyers for witnesses and so on. So basically what I would be looking at, to finally answer your question, sorry, is no, a I would focus I would focus on um, disproving that this was a loan um, repayment by James Biden to Joe Biden. B, just as equally important, focus on the fact that the AmeriCorps six hundred thousand. Just so everybody's clear, you had two hundred thousand on March first, but earlier in the year two thousand eighteen, you had four hundred thousand. So the total six hundred going to be very easy to prove that that was not a loan from AmeriCorps uh, to James Biden. Rather, it was some kind of payment to him. And so, again, if you really investigate it, start talking to people, subpoenaing records and documents, um, you're going to start being able to figure out what's really uh, going on here. Um, and, you know, that would be sort of the approach. I would tell the investigators I was working with, you know, we want to look at bank records for the relevant time period of you know, March of 2018, and then we want to try to speak to, you know, various witnesses. And again, that's the fun, the inside baseball, the X's and O's. You're sitting in a conference room with investigators, and you're like, look, who can you interview? You know, and they go out, and they start knocking on doors, and they start interviewing people. And again, broken record, people say, no, I'm not going to talk to you. Then you issue a grand jury subpoena, and it just goes from there. Interestingly enough, the amount of money here... Um, 
is not a big amount vis-a-vis another little fact, which is, you know, not lost in the uh, dialogue, which is James Comer. I mean, he claims that he's uncovered uh, $24 million going to the Bidens, by the way, Rich. Right. (laughs) So, you know, 200,000 is a drop in the bucket on the tip of the iceberg. But what's interesting here, go a little bit, put my toe in the swimming pool of the politics stuff, um, as opposed to the law, is, you know, Joe Biden has walked around for 50 years. You know, I'm Joe from Scranton. I'm the poorest guy in the Senate. My father used to tell me around the kitchen table, Joey this and Joey that. Right. And now, like the Wizard of Oz, the movie, start pulling back that curtain a little bit, okay? And he has 200000 and he lives in a mansion right on the water, and then he's got a second big home. And he had, he had bought a DuPont mansion, by the way, in Delaware. You don't hear about any of this in the media, okay? Yeah, and I've never had $24 million, uh, just to be frank. Neither uh, have that I. That sounds like a lot of money for Neither somebody who's I. working Neither have I. Not even government. close. Exactly. Right? Uh, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and again, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Finish your thought. No, no, I'm just saying the guy has worked in government for 50 years. The government salaries are fine. They're solid salaries and you know, pensions and health insurance are hardly poo-pooing a government job. But at the same time, it doesn't translate into, you know, two huge homes and, and, and on all the of the... Yeah, 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 and all of that stuff. And again, you know, people just kind of look the other way on it, and, and it's very interesting. And then the other broken record point is the double standard. You know, the left calls it whataboutism, you know, because they have a one-liner for everything. But again, don't tell me with a straight face that if this were Donald Trump, you wouldn't be hysterically lecturing us what a crime it is. Right, and you know what I was thinking is, <clears throat> it, it's fascinating that you bring that up. Because I'm thinking, all right, so now you've got your investigators around the table and yep. uh, you're brainstorming and wargaming this thing out. And they yep. go and they start asking questions and they find a few people. Let's say, I don't know, you get James Biden, you get Joe Biden. You probably won't get Joe Biden, but let's say you get yeah. James Biden and his wife. And you yeah. say, hey, oh, yeah, yeah, he lent his brother Joey some money. And then he says, yeah, I lent my brother some money uh, or he lent me some money. And, oh, he right. lent you some money. Okay, great. How'd you get well, the I would like you to well, give us the records. Sorry to interrupt you. You know, yeah. if you could do me a favor, Jimmy, you know, just pull out the records, you know, the documents. Obviously, now you can be sarcastic, which is fun. And you see them, you know, <laughs> kind of sweating across the table. Obviously, you know, you guys signed a loan agreement, you know, for that kind of money. So just bring that in. And then, you know, uh, so the lawyer might even say, oh, Mr. Burns, can we just step outside for a minute <laughs> in the hallway? <laughs> but, but here's you the know. thing. Supposing <laughs> he turns around and says, well, you know, look, I was home. I was telling my brother I had a real estate deal that went south on me. And he was like, oh, you know what? I, I'm in my, my, my beautiful uh, vintage Corvette. I'll meet you outside the house. I happen to have the money in cash. It's in my trunk. I'll bring it to you in a duffel bag. Now what? Well, it's going to be hard for guys of that societal level. But it's such a great point by you. Um, you know, I've seen cases left and right with three and four and five hundred thousand bucks in a suitcase. Seriously, um, really fascinating. But the fact of the matter is, you know, that's going to be a hard sell for a guy who's you know at the loftiest positions <laughs> in the government and stuff. Um, but look, if they tell you that, I mean, there's an old saying in law, and I think your listeners will find it really interesting, and that is that. You know, if you tell the truth, it holds up no matter what. If you don't, you get killed. And then I think it might have even been Mark Twain who said, you know, don't lie because then, then if you don't lie, then you don't have to remember anything. So here's the right. point. If I tell you, Rich Valdez, Rich, I went to the movies last night and I saw the ABC movie. Fine. If I'm lying, okay, and investigators hypothetically go out, 
The, no popcorn clerk remembers me to show them photos. There's no record of me buying any ticket, cash or otherwise, credit card, nothing. Okay? And it breaks down like a house of cards. If I did go to the movies, I'm fine. So here, if you just glibly say, Joe Biden loaned me 200000 This was a loan repayment. AmeriCorps, by the way, they loaned me 600000 Again, to answer your question again, the point is, without getting into the conference room specifics, Trust me, it'll start breaking down if it's not true. And, and the reason I ask is because I had a conversation with somebody about about Gold Bar Bob. You may know him as United States Senator Bob Menendez and his <laughs> gold bar. And, and, and that was my question. I would say, so hold on a second. It's, it's a crime for me to have gold bars in my house and keep stacks of cash in my jackets? Because he says he was, his family fled communism. And if you flee communism, then you're used to keeping money in your jackets. And while that may be even true somehow remotely, it was very funny to me. And I just thought to myself, he can't really think that's going to work. Um, you having done this job, do these types of defenses hold up? No, he made a huge mistake with that because the point is he claims that he took out a half a million dollars over a 30-year period. Um, I think the listeners will find the X's and O's on this really fascinating. He's going to get crushed on serial numbers, as dumb as that sounds, okay, because when you take money out of a bank, very often you have consecutive serial numbers, okay, but when you get money in nefarious contexts, you know, bribery, otherwise drug-dealing, money-laundering, the bills are never in uh, in sequence, okay? So that's interesting. Number two point, Sherlock Holmes point, and I'm looking at a Sherlock Holmes sketch by the great Al Hirschfeld that I'm very proud of. But the point is, um, he's going to get killed on the year years on the bills. Hear me out. He go, I've been taking this money out 30 years. Well, ladies and gentlemen, please explain why the oldest bill in the stack is 2005. You might want to think about right. that. So, again, it's going to start breaking down like crazy. But he did something interesting. Um, and he is a lawyer, if I'm not mistaken. And he threw yeah. a big Hail Mary to just get it out there um, to potential jury pool. Like, oh, maybe he did take the money out, knowing that he's never taking the stand. And then, B, I got into an academic um, discussion with a lot of friends and colleagues about whether his statement at that press conference is admissible in court, okay? And without getting all in the weeds, generally, technically, a statement by somebody is hearsay, but if it's by the defendant and it's against their penal interest, I'm quoting from, you know, the hearsay principles, then it does come in, but he may be banking on that they can't get that in and nobody will ever hear it in a courtroom. But it's, again, it's a mistake um, to say that I took the money out. And then the gold bar thing, I mean, it's really comical because I'm a 91-year-old aunt. This is actually funny. And she told me that somebody called her to sell her gold bars. And she said to the guy, this is great. Well, wait a minute. Could you explain to me how I go to the supermarket and buy eggs and milk and then hand them the gold bar? And the guy hung up, Rich. Uh, I love it. That's a That's classic. Funny. But the point is, so Bob Menendez, he's got these kilo gold bars. A kilo is 2.2 pounds, by the way. That's a lot of gold. That's serious gold. Right. And the point is, he goes, I was keeping it for an emergency. Oh, really? You know, sarcasm is the best in a courtroom, right? Oh, really, ladies and gentlemen? So in an emergency, I guess, obviously, the ATMs break and so on and so forth. He'll go to the grocery store and buy milk and eggs and hand him a $60,000 gold bar. And I guess he'll say, can you give me $59,000 in change? 
<laughs> so, you know, that's the fun of law. That's the fun of law, you know, the sarcasm and stuff. But he shouldn't have gone with that excuse. But at the same time, he's got a tough case there. That's a tough case because, um, you know, the money's there, the gold bars, et cetera, et cetera. But the way the case will be defended real quick is on the other side of it, which is I didn't take any official actions, the McDonald case, you know, and all of that. Doug Burns, I know you're scheduled for two segments, but I have a question about this, uh, what you talked about, about hearsay principle. Could you stick with us for a little bit, or do you got to run? Oh, absolutely. Sure. My pleasure. All right. I'm going to come back with that straight ahead with Doug Burns, former chief of the criminal division for the Department of Justice. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. With Rich Valdez. All right, familia, welcome back, amigos. We're on with Doug Burns, former federal prosecutor. He was chief of the criminal division for the Department of Justice in New York. And Doug Burns, uh, you mentioned something earlier about hearsay and about what Menendez said uh, with respect to his case and hoping it would never be admissible in court. And all I could think of was how Trump gives these courthouse speeches. And I have a clip uh, uh, real quick that I want to play of the most recent one he did a couple of days ago. Listen to this. This is a disgraceful situation. This is an attorney general, Leticia, that went out and uh, campaigned on, I will get Trump. I will get Trump no matter what. I'll get Trump. I promise I'll get him. We have two tapes on her now that have come out since the trial because people took tapes of her because they couldn't believe her ranting and raving like a lunatic. So there's Trump. He calls uh, Jack Smith deranged Jack Smith. They keep threatening him with gag orders. They imposed a gag order. And uh, today he was fined $5,000 for um, maligning a, a court staffer um, through a meme on 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 the Internet. And the, the judge, you know, is taking this very seriously. And of course, um, I think it was that that court staffer or another court staffer that started yelling at him and was arrested in court yesterday or the day before. I mean, this this whole thing is a zoo. I wish we could watch this on court TV. But Doug Burns, um, with respect to that, is Trump walking right up to the line and defending himself since he's the defendant in this case? Uh, I know most attorneys say I would tell him not to say anything. Let me do the talking. But of course, it's Trump right. and he wants to be out there. And I think it's his right. And honestly, I think I might do it, too, if it was ever me in those shoes, because I, I think at some point you have to swing back. Uh, but what's your take here? Does this become hearsay? And, and do you think it, it's appropriate the way they're handling this? Uh, what say you? Well, gag orders real quick, obviously balance um, somebody's First Amendment rights, even as a defendant to speak. Um, versus, obviously, the integrity of the court proceedings and the safety of witnesses and things like that. So in 99% of the gag order situations that I've been in, in my 38 years, um, the judges will tell the defendant, do not speak about witnesses in the case uh, for obvious reasons, and do not speak about specific evidence that you learn about as you go through the discovery with your counsel. 
And the defense lawyer would say, undoubtedly, Your Honor, I will explain to my client uh, that he will not speak about witnesses or evidence. This particular gag order, and I said in media a number of times, was way too vague, way too broad. She said, don't make any statements, you know, addressed to the judge. I forget the exact word. Um, but the point is the word would include Trump saying, believe it or not, targeting. Okay, my memory stands up. Uh, don't make statements targeting uh, the prosecutor. Well, if he said technically the prosecutor is a wonderful human being and I love him, that quote-unquote is targeting the prosecutor, correct? So it's a ridiculous right. order. I'm sure you saw today, this was interesting, that this judge, Chutkin, she uh, suspended the gag order. <laughs> um, and the reason she did that is because they took an appeal. And I think the uh, between-the-lines stuff was that the appellate court might have been ready to start criticizing her a little bit. Right along the lines I just said, which is you can prohibit statements about witnesses and evidence, but this thing about don't make statements targeting people, it's very vague and almost impossible to enforce. Now, on Trump saying the things he said, calling Jack Smith a deranged psycho, I mean, he shouldn't be doing that. It's not conduct becoming a former president, obviously. Um, so the point is, I also said in the media that this was more of a decorum order than a gag order, Rich, because Trump could say th the same exact thing on three different levels. One would be highbrow, which isn't so much in his DNA, which is the prosecutor and the judge folks at a rally, for example, um, they're totally misguided on the facts and the law in this case, et cetera, et cetera. That's fine. Number two level would be Jack Smith is a political animal. This is a political effort, okay? I've been calling it a witch hunt. It really is, blah, blah, blah. That's also probably technically okay. Three, he's a deranged psycho. Um, that's actually free speech, but the decorum is horrible. And so most judges would say, Mr. Trump, even though technically it might be protected free speech, can you stop calling the guy a deranged psycho? That really <laughs> makes yourself look foolish. That's all. Got it. All right. Well, Doug Burns, thanks for clarifying that for us. I appreciate it. Uh, Doug Burns, let everybody know how they could follow you and keep up to speed with the work that you're doing. Well, at Doug Burns Law on Twitter, um, you know, and on the Internet, I'm around. I do a lot with Newsmax. I'm on there a lot. Um, you know, I still appear on Fox News Channel um, and Fox Live now, you know, so I'm around. And, of course, here on America at Night with me, Doug Burns, I appreciate you coming on board, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you some more real soon. I hope so. Thanks, Rich. All right, Doug. Thank you. All right, folks, we're coming right back. Your calls and more. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And the turmoil that goes along with being a hostage and just overall the effects of terrorism causes trauma. And that's trauma that I want to get into with a doctor who specializes in trauma, in particular trauma caused by terrorism. We're going to get into that in a moment. And with the release of these hostages by Hamas, uh, I'm really, um, really curious to, to learn more about this. So, folks, stick with us. The next hour is going to be amazing. I think you're going to really enjoy it. 833-482-5337. 
833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number. Don't move a muscle. We're coming right back. Hour two with me, Rich Valdez, straight ahead. the city that never sleeps 17 miles from madison square garden new york city it's america at night with rich valdez america's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across america and now here is your host rich valdez Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S at the end. Of course, welcome to the program, your liberty-loving Latino amigo. Happy to be here with you this Friday evening. If you want to join our late-night national town hall conversation, feel free to give us a call, 833-4825-337-8334, Valdez. And, of course, Jim Jordan, we discussed in the first hour, has um, withdrawn. He's out. He's not going to be running again. Um, I'm upset to hear that. Um, I'd love to see Byron Donald step into that void. Let's see how that goes. We'll keep you up to speed as that continues. And there's been two hostages that have been released by Hamas. And it's an American mother and daughter that were taken hostage in Israel. Uh, Photos have been released of them being freed. And we have a clip of audio from Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Listen to this. I can't speak publicly about the details of of these efforts. I I know you understand that. But the urgent work to free every single American, to free all other hostages, continues. As does our work to secure the safe passage out of Gaza for the Americans who are trapped there. Judith Renan and her 17-year-old daughter Natalie were both let go from Hamas custody in Gaza uh, and were said to be en route to a military base in central Israel to reunite with their family. That's according to the office of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And a photograph later showed the mother and daughter being escorted through the night by what appeared to be military officers. Uh, Prior to Netanyahu's statement, Hamas officials said that they released the two women following Qatar's intervention in negotiation efforts. In response, this is uh, the the quote from uh, the Times of Israel, in response to... Qatari efforts, Al-Qassam brigades released the two American citizens for humanitarian reasons and to prove to the American people and the world that claims made by Biden and his fascist administration are false and baseless, according to their uh, statement. Now, of course, everyone realizes how traumatic and how stressful a situation like this could be, uh, both on the hostages and everybody else that's involved in this war. Water being turned off, bombs coming in, people dying, people getting raped, children being beheaded. Absolute horror. I'm not there, and it stresses me out. So I can only imagine those that are directly um, interacting with this situation. Uh, but I want to talk about the the traumatic effect that it has on people. And uh, I want to bring in our guest because she's an expert on trauma from the result of terrorism. She's an assistant clinical professor for the Icon School of, uh, excuse me, take two, (laughs) the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. 
and uh, a recognized expert on trauma and terrorism, board certified psychiatrist and psychoanalyst practicing in New York City. And she's the author of the new book, Psychoanalytic and Spiritual Perspectives on Terrorism, Desire for Destruction. Her name, Dr. Nina Serfolio. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you tonight. It's an honor. Uh, Thank you. Likewise, I, I appreciate you staying up late to have this conversation. It's in a uh, conversation that I think Americans need to hear uh, as we yes. go into this, because I think this is part of the equation that we don't always hear. Right. We hear about the uh, the, the news of the day. We hear, uh, you know, each side putting out their statements, but we never really discuss the impact that trauma has on folks that are involved. Uh, help me understand how you even got involved in this line of work. So really, it's been my life work to understand uh, mass shootings, terrorism, and the desire for destruction. My book, in part, is memoir. I have survived two terrorist attacks. I was a first responder down at 9-11, and I subsequently developed uh, breast cancer. And then I did uh, humanitarian work in the Second Chechen War, Uh, providing, again, medical and psychological care to the Chechens that were both stranded in Groznia and the lucky ones who were refugees who escaped um, to Ingushetia, which is the province next to uh, Chechnya. And as a result of that, actually was poisoned by an FSB agent and uh, suffered many emotional and physical consequences of that. So I really understand terror from the inside out. Wow. Folks, we're on with Dr. Nina Serfolio. And uh, again, both a practitioner and an expert by way of experience and uh, education. So based on your own um, run-ins with terror and your your professional background, uh, how do you weigh in on the effect that this has on on both sides, right? Obviously, I'm sure there yeah. are some people in, in, in Palestine that are not supportive of Hamas and don't want to be at war. I've spoken with them and myself. Uh, I know that most Israelis I've spoken with don't want any war. They, 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 you know, they're usually the ones that are running for cover when the air raid sirens go off. And it's an interesting thing because when I've spoken with folks that live there, uh, they seem to make it normal that that's just a part of life, that bombs just start coming in. Uh, it's a part of life that I don't understand, but I could only imagine that that would cause anxiety and, and other issues when you, you never know yeah. if you're on a date with your girlfriend, all of a sudden, you know, things are blowing <laughs> up next to you. It's kind of crazy, right? <laughs> yes. No, this is catastrophic, horrendous, overwhelming trauma that often the human psyche shuts down when you have that much trauma, the trauma of being in war, of death abductions. And often what most people do is, is shut down emotionally. They dissociate. So they become numb. It's exactly what you're uh, describing mm-hmm. in war. You get so used to the missiles and the violence that you become numb to it and you, you dissociate, so to speak, which is where you emotionally shut down. And there's various degrees of dissociation. One is post-traumatic stress disorder, where you relive the trauma and flashback and nightmares. And then there's various various degrees of uh, dissociative disorders, but a basic one is post-traumatic stress disorder. And traumatic memory actually is stored in our central nervous system very differently than normal memory. 
The normal so? memory is... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying how so. How is it stored differently? Oh, right. So normal memory is stored verbally. It's stored in the prefrontal cortex, which is the front part of the brain. And traumatic memory is stored somatically and visually in our amygdala. The amygdala is kind of in this, it's like a walnut shaped um, organ in the middle of our brain so that when we go to remember, quote unquote, traumatic memory, we remember it either by storing it in various uh, body parts or we visually remember it. So it's so important in working through traumatic memories to begin to verbally remember. And also, it, you know, traumatic memory is broken up so that we can forget, remember, and then forget again over and over again. Time becomes warped, the past becomes the present, and the present becomes the past. So often people are reliving their trauma in the present. So it's very complicated, and it, it's so important in the working through of trauma to be able to verbally get in touch with feelings of murderous rage, sorrow, pain, um, overwhelming feelings that are really hard to process. And in a nutshell, it's, it's dealing with those horrendous feelings and then mourning the loss and then eventually which takes time, but eventually going on with a living, because that's what we have to do. Because often terrorists want us to be so frightened and shut down that we will not go on with our lives. And we have to, we have to be strong enough to, you know, engage with the living, so to speak. That's an excellent point. And folks, I want to remind you, you, we're on with Dr. Nina Serfolio. Uh, she's an assistant clinical professor uh, at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, an expert on trauma and terrorism, board certified in psychiatry, and is a psychoanalyst uh, practicing in New York City. She's the author of the book, Psychoanalytic and Spiritual Perspectives on Terrorism, Desire for Destruction. And uh, Dr. Nina Serfolio, I want you to stick with us. I want to come back and kind of unpack a little bit about what you just said, because I think that's interesting. Uh, outside of terrorism, I think many people have experienced different types of trauma, and it's very fascinating to me how that gets stored in the brain and how it, you know, for some people, I guess they work through it and others, they get stuck in it and it becomes PTSD. So maybe we can unpack that a little bit on the way back. Folks, stick around. And if you have a question that you'd like to pose, feel free. 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Familia, welcome back. Amigos, I want to go to the phones, 833-482-5337. Our guest is Dr. Nina Serfolio. She's a psychiatrist and an expert on trauma and terrorism. Uh, let's go to the phones. 
Let's go to Aaron. Aaron, Gainesville, Georgia. You're on with Rich Valdez. Hello, Senor Valdez. Um, thank you for having me. Yes, sir. And, um, yeah, and I just wanted to, you know, it's very important that you're talking about this. It's a very important subject. You know, I'm a, I was a refugee kid. I came to the U.S. as a refugee kid uh, when I was seven. And um, uh, due to the revolution in 1979 in Nicaragua. Oh. And, um, yeah, so it was very, you know, I was, I was a kid. Everything just changed from one day to another. Uh, the next day I had to leave. And, I, you know, um, I just, you know, at, at, that, at that age, I didn't know who was, who was right, who was wrong. Um, I just um, I just wish none kid in the world could see the stuff that I saw. Yeah, you know, I can only imagine, Aaron, let me tell you, I have a friend that's in Nicaragua now, and he called me a few months ago and told me that, he said, that stuff you heard about in the 80s, it's still happening. They're still shooting people who disagree with the government, and I thought that was kind of crazy, but uh, there there are still some very active communists there that um, take things out on people very violently, so um, kudos to you for, for, for being here, and I appreciate the call. How are you doing? I don't know. I'm doing. I'm doing good. You know, even though the stuff like this, I'm also Jewish. You know, so uh, from the small community in Nicaragua. Um, so you know, uh, this situation right now in the Middle East has, um, you know, it affects me. I feel so bad, so bad. You know, for from both sides, um, for the victims and 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 unfortunately, there's a lot of people that get caught in the middle. And um, there's another side of the story that you know we don't know, and there's another side of the story that we see and. So, but, but I'm just talking from a point of view as a kid. I don't, I don't think um, you know kids shouldn't be living stuff like that. Do you still deal with um, the effects of that trauma, anxiety, depression, that type of thing? Yes, sir. I suffer from uh, depression, unfortunately. Um, I, I unfortunately I also witnessed 9/11 in New York City, um, and um, you know due to the revolution, I never went back. To the place that I was born. I'm an American citizen, and I haven't been back since. Due to the division between families, and uh, you know, the, the, the regime is still um, active there. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, I give you a lot of credit. Uh, I know that that's tough, just from my own experience with a really good friend of mine that I have in Nicaragua. I know it's uh, very difficult for him. And um, Godspeed to you. I want to pivot to Dr. Nina Serfolio. Uh, it seems like this is pretty common. Even people just coming who've seen war-torn countries, uh, let alone uh, experiencing it uh, right now, doctor. Absolutely. I really want to applaud Aaron on his courage because being a refugee is a traumatic, traumatic trauma. It's an uprooting of culture, language, identity, and being subjected to a totally new environment that's foreign and it's a tremendous, tremendous trauma. And, you know, I want to commend him for, how, I can just hear it in his voice, how resilient. And he has dealt so well with this um, childhood trauma. And absolutely, this is, it can be overwhelming for individuals to process. It can cause regressions to earlier stages of development in childhood. And it's, it's, a tremendous trauma to be a refugee. 
And, you know, Doc, and thank you, Aaron, for the call. I appreciate it. Godspeed to you, sir. Uh, th- this, uh, like I said, it seems like it's, it happens more often than not. Then, you know, I didn't know this was a thing. You know, once you point it out, it's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I, w- I was traumatized by watching my parents die in hospice. And, uh, and that's a normal part of life that comes for everybody. And it, one expects that, but it was still traumatic nonetheless. And I think, yeah. you know, just imagine the the added drama of unexpected death or, you know, gunshots or violence or all that, which uh, I think some people can live comfortably in that environment if they were brought up that way. Uh, but even then, if you're a kid, you're just apparently right. What he's telling us, you know, he, he didn't know who was right or wrong. He just knew the whole thing was bad. And uh, right. it seems like we're going to have a lot of that coming out of this. Oh, ab- absolutely. As a child, you don't have the defenses, the mature defenses to deal with war and understanding death. You know, even the concept of death isn't really understood until the age of nine or 10. So it's, it's too much for a child to process. And often they will dissociate. And there's various stages of that, in, including fugue states where People will take on um, different personalities and forget their their previous um, existence because the the trauma is so overwhelming that they can't process it in their psyche. So with children, it's especially confusing, upsetting, and they're not really equipped with the with the emotional maturity to understand what what really is going on. So it's 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 that much more complicated. Yeah, no, it really is. I, I've had other interviews with um, with with folks um, who are psychiatrists and, and psychologists, and, and they've explained on a I'm going to say a simpler level, but I should probably say a different level. The trauma related to family separations, divorce, um, kids who witness their parents dying, that type of thing, and again, uh, equally as traumatic, uh, minus the war factor. And, and that stuff causes a lifetime of hurt for people. So I could only imagine how it's compounded when you add in, you know, all of the, the, the bombs and all the sensory stuff that kind of goes along with reliving those horrible experiences. Doc, um, with the minute that we have continued uh, to go, uh, let everybody know how they can get a copy of your book and how they could keep up to speed with the wonderful work that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. So you, if you Google Nina Serfolio, Desire for Destruction, because the title of my book is a mouthful, and often people can't remember the psychoanalytic and spiritual aspects of terrorism, but if you just Google Nina Serfolio, Desire for Destruction, you actually can pre-order the book currently, although it's coming out um, December 22nd of this year. But you can pre-order on Rutledge, who is the publisher, or I think Barnes & Nobles also you can pre-order. It's not out yet on Amazon, but it will be. Well, Doc, I wish I could talk to you for another hour. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll invite you back to have you on when the book releases, and maybe we could go more in-depth on the book. I want to thank you for being here tonight. You are a gentlewoman, a scholar, and a patriot, and I thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You have a great show. Likewise. Thank you. We're coming right back. Don't go anywhere.
So we were discussing the trauma related to being in a war zone and how those traumatic experiences affect people into their adulthood. Uh, But another area that these traumatic experiences affect people into adulthood is in relationships, whether they be professional, personal, uh, etc. Trauma has all sorts of effects and it could cause people to begin to self-sabotage and do things like what they call ghosting. Right, where you just stop talking to somebody and never talk to them again. Let's say if you're dating. Now, if you've been married for 40 years and you're listening to this, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. You're going to find it incredibly entertaining. Uh, if you're like me in your 40s and, and you're active and you, you date, then um, you might find it, I don't know, maybe inspiring, maybe crushing. Who knows? <laughs> it might get scary. Uh, but there's a, a trend, and it's not a, a very great trend, but it's a new one that we're adding to the lexicon called quiet dumping. And it's a cross between quiet quitting and ghosting, and it's on the rise. Oftentimes, people who quiet dump a partner are not being malicious. They're just avoiding having the difficult breakup conversation and putting themselves in a situation that's, you know, less emotionally stressful than having to have that conversation. But this often comes at the expense of the other person. Now, truth be told, I've probably done this where you create some, I don't know exactly the definition, but I know that there's times where it's very nice people. And if the girl's nice, I'm like, you know, I don't want to let her down. I'm just, I'm not really good boyfriend material. So maybe I'll not talk to her as much and wait and wait and then kind of chime back in and then kind of go away. And I don't know if that's what it is, but it sounds like that to me. And I want to get to the bottom of it with one of our experts. Um, She's with us now. I want to welcome Jennifer Styers. She's a dating and relationship coach, and she owns a boutique matchmaking service. And she's also the host of a very popular podcast called The Lovability Show with Jennifer Styers. Jennifer Styers, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me back. Uh, I'm in my prime time now, so I'm ready. All right, <laughs> let's go. Nighttime is fun. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. Yeah, like you, I'm I'm also always on during the night, so uh, I, I I always enjoy a good conversation. And on Fridays, I let my imaginary hair down so that we can get into these types of fun <laughs> topics. Now, let's talk yeah. about um, this um, quiet. Uh, what's it called? Quiet what? Quiet quitting? Dumping. No, quiet dumping. Quiet quitting. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, whatever. Tell yeah. us how how this manifests. What it looks like. Go right ahead. Well, you know, I I think it's kind of been around, you know, a long time. It's probably becoming more prevalent because as technology, you know, has uh, has taken over, we've we have things that do everything for us. I mean, the cell phones, for example, I mean, how many people have kids? You. And how many times mm-hmm. do you have to text your children when they're upstairs? <laughs> I just did it during the break. Ready. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so uh, so it's it's we've become a society and people that are um, very non-confrontational. And so that's just, it's just carried over into the dating world. I mean, this is the version of non-confrontation and dating. People are, uh, you know, not, and got you just said it, like, you're like, I don't want to hurt her, but I just kind of want to back away. So when you back away and stop communicating as much, you know, you're kind of almost forcing her hand to do something and that I, I've always seen that with guys that they'll, I mean, guys will stay with women for years because they don't want to hurt them. It's crazy, but it's like, you're hurting her by staying. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So I, I, newer trend, maybe taking, um, a little bit of getting a little bit of a lift after, uh, the pandemic, after everybody being locked up and, and isolated that they, I haven't learned how to, you know, communicate again. 
some people. Well, I got to say, look, I'm a professional communicator. It's what I do for a living. And when it comes to relationships, I'm really bad at communicating. Uh, I've learned, you know, um, I think women in general are very good communicators. And be the dad of two daughters, I've seen children, my children grow. Boys are very different, right, from girls. I, I see boys, it's like, yo, what are you doing? I'll push you. You push me back, I punch you. You punch me back, we fight. And it's a very common occurrence. But with girls, it's like, why did you do that? Why did you say this? What's going on? And they have these very long, drawn-out conversations that I, I, I honestly don't think I could ever have, right? I've never really had those types of conversations. And they until... do that in, yeah, they do that in no. dating mm-hmm. too, Rich. It's amazing. Well, that's my point. Until now that I'm post-divorce 12 years and I date, and I, I even have a girlfriend now, and I find that very... Um, uh, it's great having a girlfriend, but it's 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 a challenge to be able to match the level of of communicativeness that she possesses. I'm like, man, which one of you is uh, the professional communicator here, me or you? Because uh, she's so good at it. And I'm like, oh, I thought I said that. <laughs> I thought that I thought you understood that when I said X, Y, and Z. So I just find it so fascinating that that there's such a gap in communication, and even the idea of saying, well, we have to communicate. Uh, there's times where I'll, I'll send a text message or something and think that I said that and they'll say, no, yeah. you said this, this, and this, and they'll show me the text. And I'll go, yeah, that's what I meant. And it's like, you know, it, it, when in retrospect, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I guess you're not a mind reader. You didn't, you weren't in my head as I wrote it. And I, I, I find it funny, but it really is. It could, it can create conflict from nothing. And, and it, it's silly in most cases and it could be avoided if we were better at it. Yeah. I mean, it, at the end of the day, I mean, there, men and women are built different. Men are more direct. Women are more indirect. Um, women, women will hint, you know, around to what they want versus saying it directly. And guys would rather just say it directly or, you know, have someone say it directly to them. We're on opposite ends of the spectrum. And what you're talking about, too, with the communication and how girls communicate with one another, you know, I see this all the time in dating. It's like the guy and girl go out on a date. And, you know, let's just say he doesn't text her the next day. She's going, well, he didn't text me, so he must, you know, I'm, I thought we had a good connection, but we must not because I haven't heard from him. And if I were, you know, if I were interested in somebody, I would have texted him already. You know, and so women do this whole head thing where they, and really, I love women. I'm a woman. But we sabotage ourselves that way. We sabotage relationships from the very beginning by doing that. And, you know, at the end of the day, what I tell women is you need to communicate. Why don't you ask him, you know, if you offended him when he when he said when you said this or you did this instead of backing off and then getting in your head and, you know, and, and thinking about it and analyzing it after. Why don't you just ask or, you know, say, did I offend you? I'm just curious. You know, women just women just do that thing, like you said, where they're in their head about everything and going around in circles where a man's just like, you know, directly just tell somebody what they want and how they want it. And it's over with. Right. Mm -hmm. So it makes, it makes it difficult, Rich. It makes it difficult. (laughs) It is. I don't know if you've written any books, but you should write one on this topic because I think it's a, it's a fascinating (laughs) topic. And folks, if you're not listening to her podcast, you should, uh, because, um, go to her website, by the way, it's, uh, lovegen.com. Jen with two ends, lovegen.com. Um, Jennifer Styers, I want you to stick with us. We're going to continue this uh, conversation into the next segment. And I want to remind people, her podcast, The Lovability Show with Jennifer Styers. We're coming right back. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. 
Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back, familia. We are on with Jennifer Styers. She's the host of the Lovability Show with Jennifer Styers. Check that out wherever you get your podcasts and her website, lovegen.com. That's a gen with two N's. And Jennifer Styers, I want to pick up where we left off. We're talking about communications and this this, um, ghosting, quiet quitting, quiet dumping uh, phenomena that's occurring. And, you know, based on your experience in connecting with people, uh, I follow you on social media and I saw something interesting that you posted, um, which I feel like lends itself well to this, which was that now that sex is more available, love is less available or something to that effect. Tell us about that. Well, you know, it, it's just everything's so easy now. And um, and it's ta- this convenient society Nobody really, you know, everybody gets the new phone, even though their other phone works fine. You know, everybody's got to have the newest, latest, greatest of everything. And with relationships and especially dating apps have really changed everything in regards to dating because it's made everything more available. And uh, sex is one of those things. I mean, we're, we, we tend to see more hookups on these dating apps with, you know, sexual hookups. Um, and right away, Rich, I mean, these women are doing it too. It's not just, it's not just a man. I mean, women are getting on there and hooking up and they, they're not waiting for a third date or a sixth date or, or until they're married. They're just, you know, doing that right away and it doesn't leave anything for mystery. And so why would a guy continue? I mean, I've done, I've, I, I'd love to find out your opinion because I've talked to panels of men and guys will say, look, I would probably rather not sleep with a woman on the first date if I'm trying to, if I like them and I'm trying to get to know them. But if I do, if they offer, I will, and I probably won't go out with them again. <laughs> and yeah. I wish women knew that, you know, but I mean, you're a guy, what do you think? Well, let me tell you, I, I think women do know that. I mean, it wasn't a guy that made up uh, why buy the cow, cow if you can get the milk for free, right? I'm pretty sure that was somebody's <laughs> mom that came up with that one. And, <laughs> and, and that's true. And I, I've, preached everything to my kids growing up. Again, I have two girls and I've I've told them this from day one. And I was like, really, there's no incentive for anybody to want to spend a lifetime with you if they feel like they've gotten to the deepest level of intimacy with you very early on. They're going to be disinterested in learning more about whatever other levels of intimacy there are, whether it be, you know, intimately knowing your thoughts, your feelings, whatever. Once the the yeah. level of physical intimacy is reached, I think people do give up and they're just like, all right, this is it. This is what it is. That's the best it can be. And if, if you know, if you're a guy like me with ADHD, you know, you're always looking for novelty and the next new thing and whatever it is. So that's the worst thing that could be presented <laughs> to me because it's a guarantee. Take care, brush your hair. And I feel like <laughs> that's one of those things. So what, what, I think uh, you're right. And, and and really, and as I've gotten older, I've, I've realized that that's 
something I try to make sure I get to know people so that, you know, you can have a shot at a meaningful relationship. And, uh, you know, for those who don't know my story, and I, I don't know that you know it, but I was married for close to 10 years, <clears throat> the mother of my children, whatever, she was my high school sweetheart, so we were together probably about six or seven years before that, and I got divorced around 32 or 33 years old, and this girl had been my girlfriend since I was 17. So half yeah. my life I'd spent with her. And, uh, you know, I became single in my mid thirties and or early thirties. And it was kind of like being 20 something all over again because, yeah. you know, uh, but I was 30 something and, and I kind of lived that life for the last 12 years and it was fun. Uh, but you get to the point now I'm 45 now and I, I feel like, you know, there's got to be something else out there, right? That's a little bit more meaningful than dating and being out there and, and just meeting people or being by yourself. I spent a long time caring for my parents. So I wasn't out anywhere. I was, um, you know, dealing with my parents and then they both subsequently died and, you know, and, and that was tough. So then it was like tough to relate to people on any kind of level. Cause I was kind of like miserable that my parents had died, but ultimately yeah. now I'm, I'm in a better place and I, and I'm healed. And I, and I've, I, I've met a, a young woman that's fantastic. And, um, I've tried something new to make sure that I, I still function as a human being that can care for another human being and actually try to be in a committed relationship. And thus far, I think I'm going on three months very soon in a couple of days. And, and it's been great, but it's been very difficult because yeah. there's a lot of challenge that goes with, uh, dealing with commitment. People. Yeah, well, yeah. commitment and, and just people in general. If, if you're used to a casual dating atmosphere, we go to dinner, we hang out, we don't, whatever, it's fine. There's really, like you said, there's no commitment. I don't owe you anything. If I don't want to see you, I won't see you. If I do, I'm, I'll ask. But when, when you have a, a deal where somebody's kind of your best friend and you're, you're dating your best friend, let's just say, um, and not that they were my best friend prior, but they become your like new best friend. Uh, it becomes a, a challenge because you want to be there for them on many different levels. And if you don't have that experience, it's challenging. Uh, and that's me I'm talking about. <laughs> so it, it, yeah. it becomes uh, an interesting thing. But it's also an exciting thing because of the novelty of it. It's like, oh, this is a new thing. It's a challenge. It's a fun thing. But it, it definitely makes you look at yourself and say, hmm, how good am I communicating here? How well am I doing this? How well am I doing that? And, uh, and you, you trust me, if you're messing up, they'll let you know, right? <laughs> they'll always <laughs> let you know. And, and so well, I feel at least you're looking, at least you're thinking about it, which a lot of people don't, they just, well, you know, they're yeah. like, okay, this is who I am. And you either accept it or you don't, I can move along because where there's you, there's a hundred others waiting, you know, behind you and yeah. that availability, um, of sex. And, um, and the easy relationship is just, it's, there's too much of it. So why would somebody, like you said, how do I commit? I haven't done it for so long. How do I do it? And it's using a new muscle. I mean, it, it is, it's, it's right. a, it's a tough thing. Yeah. And to blend lives together, right. it's hard. Very hard. And, and, and I have to say, I was that guy for, for the last dozen years. And mainly because I just felt like I didn't want to introduce my children who were younger at the time to a new person. Uh, in life. I just felt like that was the wrong thing to do. I look back at that. And if anybody's listening and you're like divorced, raising your kids, uh, I would say, don't do that. Don't do what I did and wait a dozen years before you really get into another committed relationship. Your kids will be just fine. Uh, I thought my kids would react poorly and whatever, and they, they would not have. Uh, I think that was really they actually something... want you to be happy. Right. I mean, interrupt, but they, they want you to be happy. And I try to tell parents that like it takes pressure off your kids, especially if you have an only child. 
But, you know, don't wait because them seeing you happy and your time being spent where you're enjoying your life makes them happy and they can go be kids and do their thing. And they're a lot happier. So don't put it on hold. Outstanding advice. We're going to come back with Jennifer Styers and wrap this thing up. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern, feel free to call 833-482-5337. Plus, Open Phone America is coming up at the top of the hour, a whole hour where you get to call and talk about anything. You sound off. It's your turn to be heard. So we're going to be doing that at the top of the next hour. But we're going to continue with Jennifer Styers from The Lovability Show with Jennifer Styers. Straight ahead, don't move a muscle. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. And he's breaking it down. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, amigos, we're here with Jennifer Styers. She is a matchmaker and a relationship coach. Uh, Jennifer Styers, in the few minutes that we have remaining, uh, let everybody know what they can look forward to when they tune into the Lovability Show. Well, that and you never know from every other week, but uh, <laughs> I do it every other week, and it is um, it's just topics about relationships and dating, and uh, just real it's real talk. Which you're coming on my show, by the way. Um, you bet. <laughs> uh, it's real talk about uh, you know issues that people are having and challenges that people are having, and you know it changes so much. The landscaping changes so much, and. Uh, I, I'm just, I just talk honestly about mistakes men make mistakes, women make, uh, and just tips on doing it better. I mean, it's hard. (laughs) It's hard. It's hard to find love. Yeah. It's hard to find. It's even harder to keep it. (laughs) That's the hard part. (laughs) That is the hard part. It is. It's finding somebody that you're truly compatible with. And the older you get, the harder that gets. I hate to say it. I'm just being realistic and then making it work and trying to bring, all of your thoughts, beliefs, attitudes, lifestyle together as one is, you know, it's hard. It's hard. Yes. It's so hard. We help you know, that. I speak with married folks often, often if they, if I meet people and they're like, Oh, we've been married 40 years, 50 years. I start an interview right away. I bust up my, <laughs> my notes. Pad. I'm like, so tell me what's the secret. How does this work? Cause I did 10 years and it was like, Whoa. And, and, and ultimately, you know, I have gotten some good advice over the years and, and it, it's just as hard, I think, to stay married as it is to stay dating and to get to marriage. It, it, it's, it requires, uh, from my perspective, you know, it's kind of like some people will let people into their world as if their world was a little circle. And I think the reality is you have to merge your world with the other person's world. And that's difficult for most. Jennifer Styers, thank you for being with us. Uh, folks, check her out at lovegen.com. I really appreciate it and hope to have you back soon and looking forward to being on your show as well. Can't wait. Thanks so much. You bet. All right, folks, Open Phone America coming up right now. Get your calls in. We're going to talk about everything. Don't move a muscle. 
live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Welcome to the program, hour number three, Open Phone America, a time-honored tradition here on this program, dating back to 1978, launched by Larry King way back when. Open Phone America is your chance to call in and be heard. This was a tradition maintained by the late, great Jim Bohannon for three decades, and we're going to continue it tonight with you straight across America. 833-482-5337 is the phone number, 833-4-VALDEZ. And uh, earlier I mentioned that there's an American mother and daughter that were taken hostage in Israel by Hamas and being held in Gaza. They've been released, and their photos have just uh, emerged. Uh, The Biden administration has been pledging support uh, for their release, and uh, rightfully so. And uh, Judith Renan and her 17-year-old daughter, Natalie, were both let go from Hamas custody in Gaza, where uh, most recently they were said to be en route to a military base. Uh, The ex-husband, her ex-husband, the father of the young lady that's there, the 17-year-old, was uh, earlier available for comment, and here's what he had to say. I spoke with my daughter earlier today. She sounds very good. She looks very good. She was very happy. And she's waiting to come home. Her mother has a little scratch on her hand, but she told me it's nothing. She's okay. I spoke earlier with President Biden. I thank him for his uh, concern, for his uh, helping with the release of them. And uh, he was very, very nice. I spoke with the governor, Pritzel, and he was nice, and I thank him very much for his effort. And hopefully I'm going to see them next week. Next week is Natalie's birthday on the 24th, and we're going to celebrate her birthday here in my home. And that is, uh, what's his name again? Yuri Renan, the father of of the young lady that was in the photo, Natalie Renan. And uh, I'm glad, uh, listen, I couldn't be happier for this guy and his family being back, honestly. Couldn't be happier. Uh, I'm thrilled to pieces for him and his family because, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are not going to have that opportunity. However, um, when they were released, Hamas released a statement, and I want you to hear what they said because they took a shot at uh, at Biden. In response to the Qatari efforts, Al-Qassam brigades released two American citizens, a mother and her daughter, for humanitarian reasons and to prove to the American people and the world that the claims made by Biden and his fascist administration, fascist, are false and baseless. That was according to the statement from uh, the Hamas folks that released them. Now, they say they released Judith because of her declining health. That was uh, according to the Times of Israel. 
And uh, Natalie Renan could be back in the States by early next week, her brother told CNN on Friday, which is earlier this evening. Uh, her dad says they're going to all have her birthday party together. Uh, good for her. I'm glad she's celebrating her 18th birthday. That's something I just did with my daughter uh, at the end of September, uh, just less than a month ago. So uh, I get it. Listen, and I'm, I'm really thrilled. Uh, I'm just hopeful that the rest of the hostages are able to have such a similar fate. And uh, it's, it's, it's crazy that this is actually going on, but things like this happen on a regular basis. We're going to continue our conversation on that as well as everything that happened with uh, dating. We talked about dating. We also talked about uh, President Biden and his commentary. We've had a lot of great discussions tonight, trauma related to the war and much, much more. So I want you to stick with me. Uh, let me see. Where do we go here? Let's go to Paul Zanesville, Ohio, W-H-I-Z. Paul, go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome, sir. Hey, good evening, Rich. You know, I just wish that Biden would um, look at the bigger picture here um, when it comes to what's happening over there in Israel and the Gaza Strip. That's that's my, my opinion on that. But I mm. wanted to talk about, so you got you a new girlfriend. Yes, so, sir. Um, yeah, well, kudos to you, sir. Um, Thank you. I, uh, yeah, with your pertaining to your last um, guest there, um, yeah. he was talking about relationships and ghosting and so forth. And um, I, I did have a uh, relationship. It was non-sexual about 14 years ago with a bartender, waitress at a local chicken wings beer place that you go to. Oh, I know and those places. One time. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, she ghosted me after about five years. And I would bought this girl. Um, she was quite a bit younger than me, um, but she showed me a lot of attention. You, you go, know, Paul. You know, tips. You know how that goes. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, she goes to me, and I see her about, I don't know how much longer later it was, but I see her in the Kroger's. And I asked her, I said, I was new to texting at the time, um, Rich, and um, we would text back and forth and stuff. And she said, well, Paul, she said, um, the reason that this didn't go any further, and I'm glad it didn't to this day because I'm going to be celebrating 34 years of blissful marriage with my wife this Saturday. But I've been with her for 44 years. Yes, sir. And um, she said, well, because I knew you loved your wife. And, I, you know, that, that, that's probably the best thing that I've ever been told by somebody that may be a Gen Z or something. I yeah. don't know. But this girl, yeah, she, she hit it on the head. So, you know, there's temptation is always there, you know. Yeah, I, I hope um, your wife's not listening, Paul, or your neighbors. <laughs> oh, no, I don't no, want you I to get in I, trouble. I don't even care. No, I don't even care. But, no, my wife's doggy watching tonight. She's out. Her sister's watching the little doggy because they went to Maine. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so, and she don't listen to this. But I do play these things back to her on my phone, and I would like to tell my wife of 34 years, I love you very much. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, Paul, I'm happy for you. I'm happy things are working out for you and that you learned a lesson from that experience. And uh, ghosting worked out for you, right? <laughs> it worked out really well. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, man, you're doing a stellar job. You uh, take care. Have a nice weekend. Thanks, Paul. Before you go, I want to ask you, what do you think about the uh, hostages that were just released by Hamas uh, do you think this was really done in good faith? Do you think it was an arm twisting? Do you think there's more to it? What's your thought? Oh, well, um, in the first place, you know, the Hamas, they're butchers. You know, um, these people, 
Um, they're going to uh, use Joe Biden as a tool between Israel and themselves um, because um, I don't know how to explain it. You asked me that question too quick. I'd have to think about it a little bit, but <laughs> I just think that I just think that Hamas and Palestine, some of the Palestinian people, they're different. You know, I don't think a lot of the Palestinians support what they're doing. This is what terrorists do. Take the yeah. Taliban and all these other people. You know, that's what they do. And um, they're just they're they're different. That's what my grandfather told me. These are different people. They're not, in my opinion, they're not real civilized. When you go uh, cutting the heads off of babies and burning people and so forth. You're not civilized, and if, if Joe Biden don't want to step up and stand for one side or another, like he said, oh, well, this is a team effort. What What the heck? Oh, I'm not allowed <laughs> to say that. What the AG double hawker stick, hockey sticks are you talking about? This is not yeah. a team effort, uh, sir. So that that's my feeling on that, but um, you ask a lot of uh, you know quick questions, and they're hard to answer sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're doing great, Paul. I just always like to pick people's brains to see what's going on, and I think it's a, it's a good point. Uh, Biden is um, seemingly trying to play both sides of this, um, depending on what he's asked, when he's asked, where he's asked it. Uh, he'll say one thing and then he'll act another way. He'll go to Israel to show support, but then pledge support that's solely for Gaza and for uh, humanitarian aid. When we know that lots of things happen there. I was watching this video <clears throat> that said, do you know what happens to the humanitarian aid given to Gaza? And uh, they were citing a couple of million dollars from the United Nations that was, um, you know, given to Gaza and for running water, for sewage, for pipelines, uh, like water lines. And it showed in the subsequent video that these these pipes were then dug up pretty quickly uh, from underground because they used the pipe cylinders. And these are like, I don't know, 15 or 18 inch diameter pipes to create rockets and missiles to fire at the Israelis out of the pipes that they were given by the UN. So um, it's fascinating to, to see how things evolve in that part of the world and how quickly things can become violent. Paul, thank you for your call. I appreciate it. I appreciate your candor and your kind words. And folks, we're coming back to the rest of your call straight ahead. 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night. With Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Familia, welcome back, amigos. It's Rich Valdez, and we were talking about relationships earlier. And uh, there's one relationship that I'm looking at here that kind of went south. Uh, you wait till you hear about this what this Argentinian guy did and uh, how long he's 
been dealing with this particular situation in a rainforest. We're going to get to that in a moment. But I want to talk about this um, poll. There's a poll out that shows Americans overwhelmingly support Israel in their war uh, against Hamas uh, for violently attacking them back on uh, October 7th. Uh, More than 80 percent of Americans are siding with Israel amid an ongoing war against Hamas. This is according to a Harvard-Harris poll that was shared with The Hill. The survey found 84 percent of respondents sided with Israel in the Israel-Hamas war compared to only 16 percent that sided with Hamas. And I'm thinking, where do you find these 16 percent? Jeez. Anyway, we'll go into that a little bit more in a moment. I want to jump back into your calls. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Jeff Lansing, Michigan, W-I-L-S. Jeff, go right ahead. Hey, it's great to talk to you again, Rich. It's been a while. Yes, sir. Thank you. It, uh, and that's Valdez with an S, by the way, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> you got it, brother. <laughs> hey, I was listening to the father of the, 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 the girl hostage that was released. And what you are your played, thoughts? You played... Well, I hate to go full conspiracy theory on you because my theor- uh, conspiracy theories are only what about maybe 50 percent, maybe 20 percent, maybe only 10. I'm not sure, but they're not <laughs> really good. Uh, uh, boy, he sounded like he was really praising uh, Biden on that. Boy, he was going, you know, just full force uh, uh nose to the grindstone praising Biden. And the first thing that came out to me was, I, I, I'm not believing this. I I don't believe what's happening. I, I'm now, like I said, that's my conspiracy theory and play it again. It seems to me like it's way too scripted. You know, uh, I, I was, I can't say I agree with that entirely, but I did find it interesting uh, his level of emotion. But what I took away from that was this is a guy with an accent. I'm guessing uh, maybe Israeli is his first language and English might be his second language. And I think that's really what we were hearing, Jeff, was the uh, language barrier, him having to kind of process an idea in his head. It's kind of like when I speak in Spanish. While I can do it re- relatively well, I form sentences in my head in English. English is was my first language that my parents taught me. And I um, I just think in English. I don't think in Spanish. So even um, w- while you can be fluent in Spanish, you, you still have to kind of translate on the fly. And I think that becomes a thing. And I think that's what he was doing. He was trying to to be as, as clear as he could be and as descriptive as he could be while um, dealing with uh, a language barrier of his own. Uh, that's at least my thought. I don't know how right or wrong I am on that, but uh, that, that's what I think, Jeff. Uh, what do you think about Biden's overall handling of of what's going on in Israel. I don't think uh, Biden has a handling on anything, including his own wardrobe, uh, what time he gets up, what time he goes to bed. I don't think he even knows what flavor ice cream he really likes, to be honest with you. Good point, Jeff. Thank you for your call. I appreciate it. Big shout out to W.I.L.S. Lansing, Michigan. And uh, let us continue. Let's go to Derek, Jamestown, New York, WJTN. Derek, go right ahead. What up, what up, Rick? What's up, my man? How are you? I'm cool in the gang. You know that, brother. <laughs> cool in the gang. Yeah, yeah, man. So um, 
this situation that we're dealing with, uh, all of us, humanity on this planet, you see, this one billion Muslims on the planet, you see, and when we look at it, Hezbollah, we know, uh, the Palestinians, we know, and if all the Muslims start concentrating their attention to that area, because Hezbollah got financial backing. Okay? Sure, from Iran. Israel, Israel has financial backing, okay? And Palestine is going to get financial backing from one billion Muslims. So that's not a pretty picture. But it all has to play out. Everybody's beating up on the president, no matter what president it would have been in this time, place, and time. Uh, it's been the same thing. He's doing bad, he's doing the bad. Because it's something that a human being has no control over. This is historic from God. And don't forget, the only one that came to America, okay, and told us about our genetics, Master Farid, F-A-R-D. And in turn, he gave birth to the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And then in turn, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan Mohammed. When we look at it, every place that the, the, the white man goes, my son, this is in his nature. It has nothing to do with race or anything. It's genetics. And that recessive gene that the white man has, the white race has. What is the recessive gene that the white man has? What is it? Yeah, it's it's his it's his it's his gene. That's 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 the gene that he was grafted from. You dig from the original. When you take something from the original, you're in trouble. You see, because that. Well, let me understand. So you're saying that that white men are are white by default because they're not black because of a recessive gene. No, this is the way they were grafted out. I grafted them out, the right the white race, okay? Oh, this is so interesting. I'd love to hear more about it. I didn't know that there were any recessive genes in all white people. I thought all different types of people had recessive genes one way or another. But, Derek, thanks for your call. Try and make the point faster next time. I appreciate it. Uh, I don't think whites are recessive, nor do I think browns or blacks are recessive, but we'll continue with more on that straight ahead. Folks, your calls and more coming up now. I'm Rich Valdez. broadcast that I hope the rest of America listens to every day. America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. So yesterday, President Biden took to the stage at the Air Force Base saying all sorts of things. And a lot of people are very, very um, upset with what he had to say. 
I want to go to Boise, Idaho, K-B-O-I. Let's go to Paul in Boise. What's up, Paulie? What's going on? Good evening. Thanks for taking my call. Um, you bet. Yeah, something troubling. I didn't get to hear the speech that he gave Biden last night, but I heard some things. And one thing that really stuck out at me was when you give aid and comfort to the enemy during a war, which we are now in, and it's called treason. And he is a, he's guilty of that treason. And I hope somebody that's listening will seriously look at this because this guy needs to get out of the office. Understood. Let me tell you, uh, I think Joe Biden has been uh, treasonous in his duties, whether it comes to what happens at the border, whether it happens to what he's doing uh, globally. I mean, listen to this story. I think I mentioned it earlier, but I want to get into it just a bit here. Um, Where did it go? Where did it go? Anyway, here it is. NBC News. Federal agents raided a chicken plant and found more than two dozen miners working at this chicken plant in Ohio. Federal agents found more than two dozen miners illegally working inside a poultry plant in Kidron, Ohio, And this is according to NBC News. The children were mainly from Guatemala, according to advocates who were in the meat processing and sanitation plant run by a company called Gerber's Poultry, which produces Amish farm chicken as uh, advertised with the slogan, better feed, better taste. So you look at that and you think, man, something is going on here, right? It must be that open border that we have. It must be all these people pouring across the border that are coming as unaccompanied minors. And then all of a sudden the federal government says, hey, we don't know where 85,000 of these kids are. Really? You don't know? That's fascinating. Uh, Nobody else can seem to find them, but um, we all know that they're working in these plants in the overnight. Absolutely horrible. I mean, I I can't begin to tell you how um, disappointing it is to see that the United States government is complicit in this type of uh, trafficking of humans. But that's exactly what's going on. Paul, um, I agree with you. This this president has been derelict on multiple occasions, and uh, this is not the least of those. Paul in Boise, Idaho, KBOI. Thank you, sir. Uh, let me see. Where do we go? Let's go to Sarah, Bedford, Indiana, WBIW. Sarah, go right ahead. Hey, Rich, great talk to you as always. Uh, I just want to say, with regards to your um, caller, Derek, when he's talking about that recessive gene, he's talking about Nation of Islam, led by Louis Farrakhan, uh, you know, founded by Elijah Muhammad. And they teach that a long time ago, all people were black, there was a glorious civilization, but there was an evil scientist named Yakub who wanted to overthrow that. So he basically bred, I guess, black people had a recessive gene that you, you inbred them and they turned white and you created this evil white race to overthrow the civilization. So it's straight up black race supremacy theory. And he can he can believe that if he wants, but then he shouldn't have any qualms or problems with white, you know, supremacists who preach that, you know, uh, blacks were mud people or any other sort of uh, racial supremacy theory. And if he wants to be separate, he's always telling you not to work for the white man, well, then he should uh, honor or at least understand uh, supremacy groups from other races who want to be separate and preach uh, racial supremacy theories. I think you make a good point. And again, this, this stuff about recessive genes, uh, you're right. You're tracking back its origin uh, fairly well. Um, 
that's not even a, a thing here. It's exactly what you said. I mean, these recessive genes are typically something that arises from parents being uh, related or inbred. And uh, it's a tongue-in-cheek reference as a slight on on those that, I guess, uh, Derek didn't agree with, um, or at least that's just how he was describing it. But it's fascinating to see where, where that goes. And in, in my time, I can't say that I, I've seen this be the case. I don't know any white people or black people, honestly, that are the result of inbreeding. I just, I don't know that. Uh, it, it's an interesting, interesting concept. And uh, maybe there's a documentary somewhere that I can watch over the weekend. But um, I think your explanation was it was as good as any that I could offer. Sarah in Bedford, Indiana. Thank you for your call. Have a great weekend, by the way. And I'm glad you're back on the night shift so you can join the conversation. 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't go anywhere. America at Night with Rich Valdez. In live late night radio, six years in a row. It's Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. So listen to this. This guy was married, and at 70 years old, he decided to kill his pregnant wife. Or was it a pregnant wife? Uh, This guy is now 70. He emerged from the rainforest 22 years after escaping jail because of the statute of limitations having expired. Again, a 70-year-old man convicted of killing his pregnant wife has emerged from the Argentinian rainforest. He's been living there since he escaped from prison more than 20 years ago. Ramon Angel Abregu, or Abregu, 70 years old, entered Tierra del Fuego and Archipelago near the southern tip of Argentina this week after crossing four border points, two in Argentina and two in Chile, without papers. Uh, Abregu lived undetected in the Chaco Salteño jungle, following his February 2001 escape, reappearing after his crime statute of limitations ran out. He arrived at the criminal trial court in Rio Grande to ask for a prescription uh, of the case, which indicates a statute of limitations. Wow. The uh, statute of limitations is 20 years, which has run out. And he's managed to remain a fugitive living in hiding. And that's according to his lawyer, Alejandro de la Rivera, uh, according to the news. Fascinating story, right? This guy goes and kills his wife, goes and hides out for two decades. He's back. Hey, I'm back. Unbelievable. Uh, Abregu was sentenced to 20 years in prison in September of 2000 for shooting his seven-month pregnant wife, Eva Falcón, four times with a Rio Grande Medical Clinic or uh, at the Rio Grande Medical Clinic in January of that year, in 2000. 
absolutely shameful, crazy, but he knew exactly where to hide out and how long to hide out before he could show face again. Anyway, I want to get your calls on this. This is kind of crazy. Uh, let's see. Let us go with, uh, let's see, who's next in line here? Um, Phil Butte, Montana, KXTL. Go right ahead. Hey, good evening. Uh, good show, good host as usual. Thank I'll you, sir. I'll make it quick. I, I believe that uh, we're on the verge of World War Three, and it's not going to take much more to set it off, and all it would take is for China to invade Taiwan now, and that'll set everything in motion, and we're going to have our hands full. And last but not least... It was brought to my attention that if you write the word Jerusalem down, if you look at it, what's in the middle of it? USA. I don't know if you believe in omens or not, but think about it at any way. Maybe somebody else noticed that too. Huh. Interesting. I haven't had an opportunity to look at it that way before. Uh, it's certainly interesting. I don't know if one thing has anything to do with the other. But it is interesting, and I agree with you. If we don't nip this in the bud, it's going to get worse. We definitely have to make sure we nip it in the bud, stop the terrorists, increase the peace. So let's go back to uh, Donald Trump's Abraham Accords and then get people to commit to doing the right thing. Um, what we have now clearly isn't working. It's a bad situation. Thank you, Phil in Butte, Montana, KXTL. And we're going to be continuing. Let's see. Where do I go here? I want to go to Gary, Eagle, Colorado, KBLJ. Gary, go right ahead. Yes. Uh, Rich, I just wanted to point out to some of these closed-minded progressive liberals that are supporting the Palestinians, the history where all this started, and everybody seems to think that when the Jews— moved into Palestine, that that they threw out the Palestinians. Well, that's a misconception. That's not the way it happened. When the Jews moved in, there were very few Palestinians, very few Arabs living in, in the area. And they sold, most of them sold their property and moved out of the, on their own free will. And... Um, um, they, they were never thrown out. And when the Jews moved in, they tried hard to, to live in harmony with the Palestinians, with, with the Muslims. And it's the Muslims that, that couldn't get along, wouldn't get along, and, and sold their land. And, and the majority of them moved out on their own free will. And I don't know if uh, you've ever covered that or, or brought that up because I know that you you mentioned a lot of the history, some of the history on, on some of the other nights on your broadcast, and I think it's a very important point for the closed-minded progressive liberals to, to digest. Well, thank you, Gary. I appreciate it. Look, I, I always revert back to the history uh, of the um, Balfour Declaration and how they kind of laid this out. I do realize there's a group of, uh, I'm going to call them rebels, but it's probably not the best word, uh, these settlers that have, that have been, I know, on the, on the Palestine side of the border 
that, uh, and I've seen the videos of them saying it, and they basically said, uh, we like this land, we're going to take it. And they go, and, and they have them everywhere, right? I, just to make a point, there, there's people who do this, they, they settle on beaches. In Puerto Rico, there are groups like this that will settle on a beach uh, that they claim is a public beach, and then if some big developer buys a, a building nearby and gets beach rights, uh, they'll say, no, no, the beach belongs to the people. It doesn't belong to you. We live here. And they'll set up uh, a, a a makeshift um, campsite on this beach. Uh, and again, I, I'm on both sides here. I think private property rights are great. It was a public beach before. I think we, the people, should have access to the beach. And it shouldn't necessarily be sold because then what happens to the poor people in the neighborhood? Right? It's a conversation that has to be had. But I, I've seen these these settlers that are almost like the people that create the autonomous zone. In uh, in in on the West Coast, like chop and uh, those types of things during the summer of love in 2020. And and I've seen them say, look, we like this land. We're taking this land and it's part of somebody else's land uh, on the Palestine side of the of the border there. And again, is that all Israelis? No. Is that the Israeli government's position? No. These are just folks that have um, decided upon themselves to be squatters. And take stuff. Now, I, I understand people will take that and play that up in the media and be like, no, but they're doing all of this. The reality is, even if there are people doing that, I'm not saying that that's right or anything else. What I am saying is that even if people were doing that, the response that that Israel received of children being beheaded, children being um, burned alive with their parents, that's absolutely horrific. It's barbaric and it has no place in in Western civilization and civil society in uh, this national discourse because there's just no excuse for that kind of behavior. At least that's my thought. Uh, thank you, Gary Eagle, Colorado, KBLJ. I appreciate it. Folks, we get to the rest of your calls and more. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Across America to the liberty loving Latino Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. It's the speed round, the final segment, the final hour until we come back on Monday. I want to check in with our callers uh, in Florida, New York, Georgia, and New Hampshire. Let's make our way uh, starting in. New York, Jane, Saratoga, New York, WGDJ. Go right ahead quickly. Hey, Rich. Okay. I want to agree with the gentleman, Jeff. I do not think the mother and the daughter were traumatized. I think that if they came from that region, I would say they knew people. The daughter was posing. Her lipstick was perfect, perfect lip liner, um, perfect eye makeup. I worked for years with trauma victims. When you have been traumatized, it shows. And they show absolutely no signs of trauma. 
And well, you know, I haven't had the chance to see the actual video. I saw an article in the New York Post, and it seemed like they were showing like an Instagram photo of the mom and the daughter. I don't know if that was a photo of them upon being released. I kind of thought it was like them at graduation or something, just a family photo. Uh, but that's something to look at. I'll definitely take a look at it. I can't make any assessment on that. Uh, but I trust your judgment. I know you've had a, a, a long history in that work. And I appreciate the call, Jane, in Saratoga, New York, WGDJ. Thank you for the call. Let's keep going so we can get everybody in. Steve, Atlanta, Georgia, WGKA. Steve, go right ahead. Hey, thanks for taking the call. You know who would be happy with you? Bohannon would. Oh, that's kind. You're making them happy every day. I mean, I, I noticed that, you know, when you first started, you didn't take many calls. And, and now you're doing it just, just, just like he did. And oh, he's thanks. just one of the, and you know, that's where you shine to really truly. I appreciate it. I, I love the sound of my own voice. So, you know, callers take away from that. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not kidding. Uh, but I realize that callers add so much value like you do, Steve, go right ahead. You should enjoy yourself because you're, you're talented and you're, and, um, you, you, uh, anyway, you're a blessing to all of us. So, Amen. So Thank you. Take that. Take that. Will do. I appreciate it, Steve. Let us continue. Let's go to John Vero Beach, Florida, WTTB. John, go right ahead. Hey, Rich. How you doing? Thank God, brother. Uh, you? Another week under the belt, yeah. almost. Right. I'm still vertical, too. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I just want to quickly say that with all the tremendous failures, since Biden took office, our terrible withdrawal from Afghanistan, terrible inflation, terrible gas prices, shutting down our oil industry, uh, and and her, his complicit, uh, you know, uh, kissing the butt of China, uh, mm. we should have an embargo on anything purchased uh, from China. Anyway, I want to get to a point here, and I have a saying that I have come up with with regards to President Biden and his treason, treason. Yeah. Acting as a foreign agent, uh, it is he's he's uh, now he has what we call and he's stuck with it. He owns it. Biden's new world disorder. <laughs> I like that. Biden's new world disorder. That's interesting. And you know what? It is a world that's in disorder. Thank you, John and Vero Beach. Mike in Dover, New Hampshire, WTSN. We're down to seconds on the clock. I apologize. Make it really quick. Okay, I'll be super quick here. Um, basically, it was kind of ironic. Trump got out in office. He made everyone do 2% GDP in NATO. And now imagine if everyone had always been doing 2% what Russia would have actually done. Right. No, I, I agree with you. I think that was the right approach from the beginning. He was criticized widely for it. But really, it was just like Bernie says, pay your fair share. Pay your fair share. Mike in Dover, New Hampshire, WTSN. Call back anytime. Hasta la próxima. Take care. Good night. God bless. I'm Rich Valdez. See you Monday. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.